Hello viewers and welcome to EduPath, the journey of success, a live series of interviews brought to you by Expert Group of Institutions Alumni Association. Success isn't always about greatness, it's about consistency. Consistent hard work always leads to success, greatness will follow. Our guest today is a living example of consistency leading to success. I'm happy to welcome Professor Greg Page to EduPath. Hello and welcome. Uh, you have a very impressive uh, profile, but uh, let me try to quickly introduce you to our uh, viewers. Professor Gregory Page is a senior lecturer of administrative sciences at the Boston University Metropolitan College and also the director of BU Met military programs at the Hanscom Air Force Base in Lexington, Massachusetts. He holds degrees from what we can call the holy trinity of higher education that is stanford university harvard university and the massachusetts institute of technology that is mit he has served in the united states navy as an intelligence officer where he developed target packages resulting in the detention of more than 200 wanted individuals including some of the most wanted insurgents in anbar province iraq he was rated by Admiral Bruce Grooms as the absolute number one performing junior intelligence officer I have seen in 28 years of service. As a tactical intelligence officer in Task Force Yankee based out of Kabul, Afghanistan. Continuing his military service, he is currently a major in the United States Army Reserve Strategic Intelligence Detachment. He has worked in various other academic roles in uh, addition to having worked as the chief of staff for the office of the mayor of Lowell, Massachusetts. We are extremely, uh, I would say, proud and uh, grateful that you have agreed to be a part of this program. Welcome to you once again. Well, Ankush, thank you very much and thanks for having me. It's, it's an honor to be here and to get the chance to uh, chat with you and, and your students this morning right or this evening right? <laughs> yeah it's evening here um so uh, i want to start off by asking you what was your childhood like because growing up uh how did you deal with the dilemma that everyone faces of what do i want to be at and at what point did you decide okay this is what i want to become mm -hmm. So uh, I grew up in New Jersey. I, I grew up in a suburb probably about 20, 25 miles west of New York City. And I, like a lot of kids, grew up very interested in sports. So mm -hmm. if you ask me when I was probably until I was about maybe 14 or 15, I was convinced I wanted to be an NBA basketball okay. player. Um, but I, I think I, I learned, you know, reality sunk in around that time, and I, I, I turned towards a much stronger focus on, on school. And so I, I just kind of explored everything and, and enjoyed all the subjects in school, but, you know, kept finding my way as, as I went. And it, it and I took a few different paths along along that way. So I when I started college, I thought maybe I'll go to law school mm -hmm. someday. And then I got interested in teaching. I took a big detour uh, after 9-11. 9-11 was my senior year mm -hmm. of college. And that really pulled me away and got me interested in stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I think I really came back full circle <laughs> being into teaching. Now. 
Right, that's uh, wonderful. Now, uh, we were talking about your education and how you took, you know, different paths uh, to reach where you are today. Now, most students dream of getting into Stanford or Harvard or MIT. I, I stress on or because you went to all three. So how did you make this happen? Well, it's a little bit of circumstance that uh, the way that all lined up, I definitely didn't didn't plan that to happen. But for, for college, I hadn't seen much beyond the East Coast of the U.S. at the time. And, and so I saw the opportunity to just look elsewhere and see other things. So I thought about schools in California, Stanford, Berkeley, L.A., and then also schools in Texas like Rice and then and even schools in, in the mm -hmm. South, because I just knew I just wanted to see right. something new and interesting and exciting. And so that took me out West. And I, and I was you know, fortunate to get into Stanford and do that. And then when I in the summer between my junior and senior year of college, I did a program where I got a chance to teach uh, in, a, in a school in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And that got me uh, that was sort of my my path towards coming back mm -hmm. East. And I did the master's degree in the ed school, the, the school of education right. at, at Harvard, Harvard mm -hmm. um, and then came back to business school much later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I've, I've uh, visited all three of these institutions. Uh, so they're, they're all beautiful places. I mean, uh, Stanford has its own beauty being on the West Coast. And I was in Arizona, so it's, it's nearby. But uh, and then Harvard and MIT are beautiful. It was raining uh, on the day we visited Harvard, but I've only visited them. And uh, I think uh, uh, the environment that the university provides is something that contributes a lot to uh, the, the kind of uh, education and, and your academic experience in the university. So uh, talking about your student life and, 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 and now as a teacher, because you deal with a lot of students, how important do you think is planning and preparation for a student? Is it just better to go with the flow and take on challenges as they come? Or do planning and preparation give a definite advantage to any student? I think I think it's definitely a mix. Mm -hmm. I think for individual courses, you, you want to be prepared. You want to, you want to plan your way through. But I'm thinking maybe at the tactical level of how you would approach a particular course you're enrolled in. But as far as your life trajectory, I think students should actually balance those things. And I think students should always keep an open mind in terms of what they might want to do and in terms of how open they are to changing their, their path. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll mention, I, I'm reading a book right now. I'll actually show the book because yeah, it's sitting sure. next to my, <laughs> my desk. And this book, it's it's an excellent book that I strongly recommend. And so hopefully that title in yes, and the blood, blood. description yeah. is coming through here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's it's about someone who actually is a, just a couple years younger than me, who was who was a student at Stanford. And she was so fo her name is Elizabeth Holmes. And, and she was so focused on becoming a billionaire and in having breakthrough medical technology to support that that uh, what it well she did <laughs> she did become a, at least on paper a billionaire and she started a company that where a lot of ethical corners yes, were cut yes. um, and she's now awaiting trial yes, I, i've heard so, of this so, story yes <laughs> so for an extreme example and the, but you have but right. for all your students i right. if they don't know that story i just want to say that it's good to be focused but but there's an extreme and that extreme can actually go the wrong mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. so 
Yeah. yeah. So I think it's yeah. It's, uh, as you said, it's important to have a mix of uh, you know being prepared for what is to come, but also making sure that you have the flexibility to uh, diverge or change paths or take a detour whenever you want to. And and as you said, you took a lot of detours on the way here. Uh, so um, now. I, as I went through your profile, I found out that you have coached students preparing for exams like GRE and GMAT, etc. So what is the importance of coaching and tutoring for a student who plans on writing uh, a competitive exam? I think it, it can help a lot because what you're getting, what a student is getting with a, a coach or a tutor is someone who can help keep them on pace and, and give them a plan and to the same way a personal trainer might knock on someone's door and have them go run. You know, right. A coach or a tutor is going to say, okay, it's time to do these exercises and I'm going to check in with you. Uh, the coach or tutor also knows has some of the, the, the things that are going to lead to success because especially someone who's had a lot of experience tutoring is going to be able to identify these are the things that can help you really get to the root of, of such a problem. So I think that can be really helpful for students. It, for, it also gave me a really interesting vantage point to see the types of students that are going to succeed right. and, and the ones that will not, the ones that will just sort of run in place and mm -hmm. not actually make those big mm -hmm. strides. Mm -hmm. And so what I found is that students who are just looking for shortcuts, students who are, are so focused on the answer, mm -hmm. they don't even want to know how to get there. Mm -hmm they will just get the same score every time. Mm. The ones, and I've had students go from a, a, a 620 to a 740. I had a, students get 770, 780, which is, are really phenomenal GMAT scores. Those are the students that are willing to put the time in to really understand right. the questions and the answers. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's important to know uh, the how and why and not just the answer. Uh, because, uh, yeah, because we have a lot of students uh, in our institution preparing for uh, the medical entrance exams, which are very, very competitive. There are about, uh, I would say, about uh, uh, one and a half million people who write this exam every year and uh, uh, and also the engineering entrance exams. And, and it's very important to make them or, or channelize what they're studying in the right direction so that they're not just all over the place. So I think that's a, a, a very nice uh, uh, opinion that you have. Now, there we have a question from a viewer. So before we continue, I want to just remind our viewers that you can send in your questions uh, for today's guest uh, live by WhatsApp. The number is displayed on your screen. That is 82964-90168. If you're not from India, make sure you have the correct country code. That is plus nine one. Um, and uh, we already have a question from a viewer. Michael Saldana from uh, Bangalore asks, uh, nice to see you and your motivating words on expert Ejupath. I'm curious to know which did you enjoy the most out of Stanford, Harvard and MIT? Which did you enjoy the most? <laughs> so I will say that uh, the the two that I would say I, I, that are at the top would be would be Stanford and MIT, mm -hmm. and and I say that you know everyone's experience is going to vary. Yeah. Everyone's going to have their own way they they go through higher ed. Mm -hmm. But with both Stanford and MIT, there's a real spirit and energy mm -hmm. of you can do anything, and people are very collaborative and very open mm -hmm. to to 
new ideas and that is probably also true at harvard but i just my experience with it was just a little bit it was just not quite the same as the Stanford MIT right. experience. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, of course, every student will have their own uh, personal experiences, uh, but it's good to listen uh, to your experience. Now, as a professor with several years of experience in teaching, uh, what do you think are the unique challenges that students of the current generation face as compared to, say, a decade ago? So the challenge, so first, one of the benefits that students have is there's more, there are more tools available to you now than existed in, in mm -hmm. certainly in my time as a student. So if you go back, I mean, I graduated college in 2002. So it, although sometimes it doesn't feel that long ago, it, there was no YouTube. Right. So, so I didn't have, <laughs> I, mean, I only wish I had, I only wish I had Khan Academy as a high school right. student and as a college student. I didn't. Um, and, and there's also a lot of resources that are available. Where, uh, you could find examples of old assignments but with solutions. And, and I think that's okay. And, and I don't want to fight that or stop mm -hmm. that because I think it's natural that websites are going to do that. Um, but, but the problem, though, that that creates or the challenge it creates is when students use that not as a resource, but as what they think is is a solution. I, I get some some situations where uh, I'm changing up questions every semester, and I'm noticing some of the answers I'm seeing are from the previous prompt <laughs> of the assignment. So I'm thinking, okay, you got to put in a little more work than that. And so you have to use those things. You absolutely should, but you have to really make sure you're using those kinds of tools the right way. Right. Uh, so uh, talking about uh, newer tools and technologies, so we have the student's perspective, but uh, other than the adoption of newer technologies, do you feel there's a need for teachers to evolve? How do teachers stay relevant? One of the ways teachers have to evolve is, speaking of these, these sites where, where you can find Mm -hmm. assignments and even you know, old quizzes and things like that what teachers have to say is okay i i'm not i'm not going to stand in front of a tidal wave and, and try to stop it from hitting because it, right. it will what instead teachers have to adapt and evolve and teachers just have to change things as they go so we can't fall into the trap of being lazy and just reusing things again and again and again that might have worked in a previous generation uh, but it's just not going to work now. And, and so I think if we can do that, we can stay relevant and we can continue to add right. unique value. Um, mm -hmm. Another thing I'll say that, that instructors can do, and this would be true, this would be true anytime, but it's it's been very true over the past year with the pandemic situation, is that teachers can offer live Q&A opportunities. And that's really important, and that's something that's really not replaceable by right. by a massive open online course mm -hmm. or just by some static website. Because especially in my field, which is data science, there's a lot of statistics and a lot of coding that play mm -hmm. into this. And so live troubleshooting, live Q&A can often cut to the heart of some issue in a way that really wouldn't be doable in any kind of automated mass produced way or even via email. Right. I think that's uh, become even more relevant in the pandemic because as 
classes went online, both teachers and students had to rapidly uh, adopt new technologies, new methods of teaching and learning. And, and especially in countries like India, where uh, there is not a lot of access to good internet or good online resources because uh, a, a majority of India is still very rural. There's a lack of good internet access and many of them do not even have like laptops or PCs and they just have this small phone that might not really support a lot of uh, uh, technology. But uh, I think it's become even more relevant that uh, both students and teachers have had to adopt and adapt, I would say, because uh, uh, now, now, what do you think uh, this uh, has this impacted students' ability to learn the pandemic that we have just had? So there are a lot of studies that say that it's it's led to uh, decreased learning capacity or uh, that there are developmental uh, skills that uh, uh, might not be as effectively imparted using online technologies. So what do you think that this pandemic has, how, how has it affected uh, education? Well, it's been tough. So the challenges that, that students that weren't the same years ago are the number of distractions. I mean, students probably, mm -hmm. students have been distracted since, <laughs> the, you know, since Aristotle had a school <laughs> Students have more temptation now. There's there's all these different things around them, and the solutions to the to those challenges aren't always very simple. So someone could say, "Oh, well, you could just make all your students turn on webcams," but I actually don't think that that's the right answer either mm -hmm. because it's it's an, I think it's an unrealistic expectation that students for for two and a half hours, which which is the length of a lot of our courses that meet the ones that meet once a week to expect students to be sort of on and right. to have the webcam on and to have their their, <laughs> their Zoom face yeah. on. I, I think that's, it's tough. I'd rather let students just focus on the material. Correct. But I think definitely it's, it's tougher. I think there's still, there are barriers that wouldn't exist if we were in a face-to-face -face environment. So I'm, I will just say, I'll just say that, that I'm very much looking forward to the return to normal, which, which I hope is coming by the fall. <laughs> All right. So uh, we have uh, a few more viewer questions coming in. So uh, there are a couple of questions that are kind of related. So I'll, I'll try to ask them together. So there's uh, one question from uh, Harsha from Goa. So he asked, did you prepare for any exams to get into these top universities uh, or do all American kids get a chance to study there? That's one question. And the, the second question from Rajesh from Chennai is, you're a citizen of the United States. And as such, was it easier for you to get into these big universities? What about those who are from, say, India, and we have a dream to at least do our master's from these big universities? So I think they're kind of related to, do Americans have an advantage to get into these universities? And uh, second, how did you prepare to get into these universities? So, so uh, what I'll say is that, yes, so for the for the exams, I, I did, you did have to do that. And, and what I'll say is that there's something good about that because without that system in place, I have no idea how the universities would even begin to sort out the applicants. Mm -hmm. So the, the mistake, the common mis- perception with these uh, exams is that if you 
are to if, if that if you, you you deserve it more like if, if you have a, a 790 and, you, and your friend has a 770 then you should get in and your friend shouldn't that's actually not how it works but they can use the exams as sort of a bar to clear mm -hmm. so they could say okay what we're going to do is everyone above this whatever number we're going to say okay you're over here now the people that are below that or significantly below that maybe aren't going to get that that chance mm -hmm. uh, but once you clear that bar you, everyone's really the same mm -hmm. so so someone with a, a 720 and someone with a 780 really might be the same in the eyes of the people reading those but but those exams what what's um, and what actually is somewhat of a of a democratizing aspect of those is that the tools to prepare for those are widespread and distributed right. A really high score is a way to signal. It. I, I, look mm -hmm. at me, I'm here. Whereas if you didn't have that, it might just be more of a and what they used to call the old boys network, which right. is how university admissions worked. Maybe more than fifty, maybe almost a hundred years ago in the U.S., there was a very small number of elite private high schools, and they would just call up. They would hmm. they would just call up Princeton, Yale, and say, "I'm going to send you twelve of my boys," <laughs> and, they, and they were all boys then. The yeah. Schools weren't. Yeah. Co-ed. Literally, how it worked. Right. So, 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 yes, and yes, and and so, I found in all those cases, uh, I was never somebody that just woke up one day and just knew it all. So, in, right. a lot of the people that tell you that are lying. The people that mm -hmm. say, "Oh, I just went in, no preparation, and I and I wrote the test and I and I crushed it." Uh, I did have to prepare a lot, and I I used the official old exams. And what I would do is when I made a mistake, I would actually look and say, what, why? Hmm. What did I not know? Why did I make that mistake? And then went in, didn't have perfect scores, but my scores were all mm -hmm. in the 99th plus percentile. And it was enough to, to do that. So, so, so yes and yes. And, and I think that um, any chance that any of you have to, to use those as a strength, you, you will and, and you should. Mm -hmm. And so... I will say though, but that does tie to the next question because it is tougher. And so there, it, there are definitely a lot of international students at all of those schools right. and, and many more. Um, but I do think that all else equal, I think there's an, sometimes it feels like it might be an expectation that people <laughs> would have uh, especially perfect quantitative scores. And, and that may, I mean, the schools, Schools are going to use the process they're going to use. So I, but I do think that it, it it is certainly tougher, and the financial aid situation is also more challenging right. because there's less opportunity for international students there as well. But I will say that for anyone who's who's out there who's thinking that your dream or your goal is to attend uh, at a master's level uh, any of those schools or, or, or schools like them, there are a lot of different programs and a lot of different degree programs that all those schools offer so there's if there's a lot of ways to slice that there's it, and they, these ways tend to grow mm -hmm. so so even at if you look at a place like uh, mit sloan sloan is the business right. school for mit they have it's not just the mba they have the masters in finance they have the they just launched a masters in analytics mm -hmm. which is interesting to me <laughs> i'm yeah. teaching that at BU. um but there's many opportunities so so it really is it is very possible and and it's a it's a it's like a whole other round once you've gone through the bachelor's level and you've maybe you've worked a little bit it's it's something that people do all the time so uh, uh I'm 
you know, changing lanes to uh, your time in the military. So I just want to ask, why did you decide to join the military? So uh, how did you become a military intelligence officer and why do you work in the field, in that field? So yeah, it was not definitely not something I was thinking about, uh, you know, before my senior year of, of college. And so with 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 September 11th, which which I know uh, folks mm-hmm. folks are, you know what that is, and and I know I have to remember though how much younger some of the listeners are, and right. and it's something they've read about, but but don't remember it the same way others of us do. Um, that definitely it impacted me. Um, you know, thank goodness he's he's completely fine now. But but my dad uh, worked at Morgan Stanley mm-hmm. in 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 the World Trade Center. Okay. Yeah, so 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 I literally watched Whoa. a plane hit almost ex- almost exactly his floor of, of the building uh, directly. Yeah, and so now he was okay. He was coming into work, and so he he left. I mean, he'd been through this in '93. Mm-hmm. So so in '93 there was a, yes. an attempt. Well, there was a, a bombing. I shouldn't say an attempt. Yes. Uh, but 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 he came out then um, covered in soot. So he came home like looking a different way. In '01, he came home gray. He was mm. just covered in gray, and that was the dust. Uh, and so 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 that experience, it didn't. It wasn't something where I went like the next day to the recruiter and you know, I'm going to become an army ranger. Yes. And you go, it wasn't really like that. It took a long time. I, I went all the way west, and I realized how it, people there. Some people there didn't think of it the same way and, and maybe had different opinions about it and that things just formed with me and I, I had one point said I'm going to join the reserve and I'll just do something else full-time and then I realized well if I do that I'm going to end up deployed anyway so with Intel that was a, a little bit of self-awareness mm-hmm. because I had to just be honest and say you know I don't think I'm a seal <laughs> just, you know, some people are going to be a seal some it's not everybody and i just think that it's 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 not maybe what i'm cut out for but i think i could do something great i think i could be an intel officer and i could actually help in contribute using my strengths and and that's what i did that drove me that there and it was a roundabout (laughs) path but i got there eventually yeah, so generally when we think of the military, there's a tendency to associate associate that with, uh, say, brute physical strength and less with intelligent work. So what is the role of brains in the military? So, okay, it's a big deal. And I'm glad you asked because I think that it's something that is uh, important. And it's important in, in not just in the U.S., but in, in yes. militaries around the world, is that the... The role of brains is is you can think about things like um, planning and think about things like uh, operational and logistics planning as well as intelligence, meaning your understanding of where what's the situation regarding your forces and, and potential adversaries, and you're using your wits to to answer those kinds of questions. Uh, whether whether it's okay, where is this person who's being sought after by U.S. and Iraqi forces in, in Western Iraq, or whether it's some other similar situation somewhere in the world, there are a lot of tools that are used to collect information, but you still need people mm-hmm. that can actually put all those things together. And and those people, I mean, that's that's analytical skills, that's thinking skills, and that's a really, it can be really rewarding work when people apply those things. Mm-hmm to those problems. Right. So we have a, a question that I feel is very relevant here. Uh, Shashikant from Udupi asks, uh, 
we want to hear about your experience as an intelligence officer. Uh, can you share a unique incident that you will remember for your lifetime? <laughs> sure. Okay. So definitely. And what I'll say there is it's uh, rather than it's, it's sort of an experience, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of incidents mm -hmm. that, that feed into it. But we, you know, so we have certain strengths when we're we're deployed overseas. We have uh, access to to satellites and to these. Um, we would say UAV, mm -hmm. and others might say drone. Mm -hmm. But but I'm saying uh, unmanned aerial, aerial vehicle. vehicle. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. exactly. We have these uh, these you know big things in the sky that w we could be monitoring some a house or some location. So so we have that. But what the local forces have is a lot more awareness of the actual situation in the neighborhoods and the streets. And so what, what I was able to do was to partner up with the police mm -hmm. force in, in Fallujah. This was Fallujah in 2006. This was two years after the huge fight with the Marines mm -hmm. and the insurgents there. Um, but what I would do is, is just go meet with these guys and we could use open source mm -hmm. tools, things like Google mm -hmm. Maps, and, and we could say, okay, there's certain things we can't, can and cannot share, but the things we can share with them, they would just open up. And and so we'd say, oh, we're looking for this guy because we think, well, we, we have reason to believe he's facilitating weapons and money, and it's coming across the desert through Jordan, mm -hmm. and he's holding it at his, he's, he's using his, his home to distribute this, and it's causing these attacks. The attacks, by the way, are against the local police. They're oh, getting this mm -hmm. much worse than us. Right. Oh yeah, so the police are very much with us. So they, mm -hmm. they, we have a shared interest. <laughs> they, may not, they may not be glad we're there, but they really want to get yes. security in their city. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so they would then say, oh, that guy? Oh, I, you know, I talked to them. Oh, we know that guy. That guy, uh, yeah, <laughs> we, know, we know how to get him and we know his family and we can uh, reach out. And so we would then basically marry up our strengths with their what with their information and then we would plan these operations and and this is where I'm not uh, this is where I don't have that moment of glory I'm not the person who's kicking down the door I'm not even the person who's actually on the target I'm not I'm just doing this all from their headquarters um but but these guys would go out with with US forces and the Iraqis and they would go and uh, and detain these guys, and sure enough, they'd find all these things at, at the at the locations. Right. So that experience is very memorable and rewarding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the end, I think uh, what you do behind the scenes plays an important role, which ties up to what I wanted to ask you next. What is the role of uh, good intelligence in a military operation? Is there something like good and bad intelligence? What can be the consequences of good and bad intelligence? So the consequences of intelligence is when the com so the commander is the decision maker. The mm -hmm. intel officer is never the person who controls the operational decision. But good intelligence can pump the brakes on what would be a bad decision. Mm -hmm. So good intelligence can you can vet the source and you can assess the quality of something you're seeing. So a lot of times people just see a report and they just want to they get really excited. So there is a time when one of the people that was one of the insurgent facilitators that was being uh, looked for was this guy uh, Abu Abdullah. They call him Abu Abdullah One Arm because he really had okay. one arm. He lost he lost part of his arm in in a boyhood. It was actually a farming mm -hmm. accident. But but so so any of these reports get everybody really pumped up. He's sort of like the the mini Bin mm -hmm. Laden of of our little. Era. 
And so some of the times you'd see these things come through and I would look at it and I would, there's certain things you can see in the report about who the source is and whether the source is credible or has a, a track record. And so anytime these, these, his name came up, these people would, would call our unit and say, okay, you know, hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And a lot of times I'd be talking to my commander and saying, I don't think we should go. And, and then he, he would believe me, you know, he saw, he got to know me and to trust me over the months that we spent out there. And he's like, look, if Paige says we're not going, we're not going. And he could have overruled me, but, um, but oftentimes people don't, the people who are pressuring us, they just, they're not Intel people. They, they're, they're seeing it and thinking, Hey, Hey, go, go, go. And w what often happens is the blunt truth is these sources are they're 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 giving information because it's a chance for them to to get paid or to who knows why they're telling that to people. But we can't just go jumping on every single report. Uh, so a good intelligence officer can say, look, am I going to risk the right. lives of am I going to send a platoon of SEALs go chasing some guy that is probably through some location that could be a, it could be an ambush, mm -hmm. it could be a trap. We're not going, and even if sometimes even the, the the guys. What I mean by that is the uh, the operational guys would say, "Oh, Intel, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of bad language. I won't repeat on the uh, on this call." They would say, "You know, All right, certain words." And I can't believe you stopped our operation. I said, "Well, I'm not going to apologize. <laughs> it's bad Intel." We're right, not right, right. So it's 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 a very risky uh, job because you have a lot riding on uh, the inputs that you provide. Uh, now, uh, uh, generally, our perception of intelligence is from Hollywood movies, I would say. So uh, there are a lot of movies, and especially with you know uh, spies and all of that. Now, how is uh, the intelligence community different from the movies? So what's the real? Uh, I mean, you are you were an intelligence officer. So what is? How was your experience different from what we generally see in the movies? In some, first, I'll say that in some ways it's similar. So, mm -hmm. so if you some movies, I feel like some movies get this right. And mm -hmm. there's a movie that I saw where I was like, okay, that is, I think it was Act of Valor, and mm -hmm. and they have the officer who's briefing the team and saying, this is where you're going, this is why it is, this is where the you know they have all the satellite mm -hmm. shots of the target, and I thought, oh, okay, that's that's pretty good. So those parts are good, but I think what the movies would miss is the the drudgery of it. The movies are going to be excitement, but not everything else. And so a lot of it is, some of it is just all the coordination that you're doing to set something up, and it's almost it's almost like you're running a campaign because there's all these different units that have different pieces of the puzzle, and when you just talk to people you'd be amazed what comes out. So you just, so there's the talking to a group of Marines who are looking at a certain area and they say, Oh, we think we know where so-and-so is. Oh, really? Okay. Well, <laughs> let's talk about that. Right. I can't right. believe you just, when were you going to tell me? But you just get, it's a lot of relationships. I think that's what movies might not always get is that there's the high tech side, but there's also this very much chatting, standing, the human talking. touch to it. Yeah. Yes, where a lot of things come together, and it's the the ability to fuse all that together is what really makes the magic happen. We have another question from a viewer, uh, Winston. Uh, he asks, um, "How was your experience in Afghanistan? Because we see uh, a lot of this only in Hollywood movies. Uh, can you tell us about your life experience in Afghanistan?" 
Certainly. And I would say that it's what's different. So my unit deployed to Kabul, mm -hmm. which which, as you all know, is, is the capital city. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. And it's not the mountains. You know, when you when you imagine when you when you think about or you see movies about U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan in the uh, in the mountains that separate Afghanistan and Pakistan, Pakistan you 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 know that that's like that's a whole different world and that and i am thankful that that was not my <laughs> world because that's a yeah that's there's some brutal mm -hmm. it's, it's just some some really brutal terrain and some some tough stuff they're dealing with so in the city the city was semi-permissive mm -hmm. drive around we could even walk around we could mm -hmm. go out and stop and, and literally pull over and and you know order some food and, and put it back in the in the in the humvee so those sorts of things um we could do, but there were periodic uh, instances of what are called spectacular attacks. So it would be there were there were it was you know there's a lot of high value targets inside of, of Kabul. So we definitely dealt with the periodic issues that would come mm -hmm. up around that, and uh, that was certainly right. tough. Uh, but but also th this one of the things that was similar was. The coordination. So we often were out there talking to uh, talking to the embassy, talking to other uh, international partner units, and then also even just gathering information from people about things going on in the city. So it was uh, it was rewarding in that sense. We our unit published like a daily intelligence report that went out to all of those mm -hmm. partners. So how how important is international collaboration and cooperation? Uh, because at the end, I think the the objective of all of this, although it does look a lot of like a lot of violence, but the objective, the the end objective is to have peace and security. So, how important is uh, the cooperation between different countries towards this common objective of peace? So it's absolutely essential because there has to be there there have to be there has to be buy-in among the regional uh, players and. It can be a challenge to accomplish that, but but there's also the so there's that level of what's Afghanistan really going to mm -hmm. look like and who's going to have a stake in the way that develops, and there's complications as you know there's issues there's there's a lot of strategic questions even questions that involve India right, and Pakistan right. about you know what, yeah yes very <laughs> very sensitive stuff very very high. Yeah. Uh, but but also at our level, and thankfully, I'm you know we're I'm down at the tactical mm -hmm. level here, and, and it's in a, in our case, it's we have Canadians, we have French, we have a Turkish, we have all these different militaries that we have to communicate with, mm -hmm. and we have to respect, and we have to learn how to talk to them, and how to ensure that we're sharing what we're seeing, and we're also getting uh, things from them, and and that is that was a really interesting takeaway from that whole experience, NATO. NATO never invoked so Article Five of NATO is is if NATO member is attacked, this is what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. That that where that really has actually happened was September 11th, mm -hmm. and so that's an example of all those NATO right. players on the same battlefield together. Right. So now uh, I think to sum uh, this up regarding your experience in the military, how has this experience of you being in the military, of you having served in both Iraq and Afghanistan, how has this changed you as a person? I think that it impacts me in terms of how I approach everything I do. And, and I think 
the experiences of seeing how seeing the professionalism of of military people and seeing the the types of day they put in to their job I mean, the, the work ethic i think absolutely rubs off on me and it impacts me with what i do even teaching which <laughs> seems very they see those two things seem very different but I, I just i bring that same mentality to preparing for classes and preparing assignments and interacting with students so i think it, it the sort of the dedication and the importance of just doing something right absolutely matters to me every day right so so uh, as a student right so what is the role of being disciplined and you know having the determination dedication and and a kind of self discipline that okay i have to work like this and and because creating good habits maintaining good habits is more difficult than just starting to do something right yes. so how does a student maintain that consistency and uh, determination towards their goal i think that for students you have to be you have to be tough on yourself but i want to say what i mean by that because it doesn't mean you just you say things because you you think that's what people want to hear or you're supposed to say so being tough on yourself doesn't mean oh you know i'm i'm not going to be good at, at calculus or i'm not going to pass the ib or the ap or, or whatever <laughs> exam you're preparing for okay that's not being tough that's just saying words being tough on yourself is is holding yourself accountable and saying to yourself do i really know this and if you don't if you go to class and you listen to a lecture and you you walk away saying you know i'm not sure if i got that whole lesson on binary numbers i i i heard 0 and 1 a lot of times but i'm not sure i got anything past that okay that's okay that's part of being a student is you're exposed to something new but and you're not sure what it is but then what you owe is you have to then say i'm going to go back on my own and i'm going to know it and i'm not going to just say oh i'm good until i right. know that i'm good and i'm held myself accountable so that's something that students have to do and i think it's very tempting and very easy for us just to open the book and say eh mm, okay <laughs> we don't want to do that so, so be so, yeah be tough on that sense and then also uh, be willing to be willing to revisit things so it's easy to say okay yeah i know that but but do you really and and so go back through and even watch something on a basic level find a tutorial on youtube or find some uh, text somewhere and and challenge yourself to go back through the simple examples and if you look at someone who's world class if you look at a world class musician at carnegie hall or you look at a world class athlete like tom brady what are they doing they're doing all the basic things over and over and over they don't just say they don't just walk away from that ever mm. so it's so yeah it's deal. important to practice and keep doing the basic things and and uh, make sure that you make it a habit right uh, developing good yeah, habits make it a ha yes and check yourself mm -hmm. and really don't don't let yourself off easy right. to say you know right. it until you're sure, sure you yeah. yeah um uh, so uh, coming to your uh, fields of uh, you know research and academics so we hear these terms big data and machine learning a lot these days uh, what do they mean and how are these relevant to a common person so the big things i would say are that when you when you hear the term machine learning i want you to think statistical learning and so i want to contrast 
what is and what isn't machine learning. If we were trying to model something, suppose we want to model what is the expected salary of an NBA basketball player? Okay, what we could do is we could just sit around and talk and, and we could say, you know, I think points per game should matter. And you could say, well, I think block shots should mm. matter. And we'll say, I think rebounds, rebounds should matter. And if we just talked and we just made up a bunch of weights to each of these variables and we built a model ourselves, well, that would just be us making it up and, and what right. we think. But alternatively, if we could take all of the statistics that we could obtain, we could use statistical software. It doesn't matter what we use. We could do it in Python, R, you could do it in Excel mm -hmm. or SAS or whatever. So we do this and we, we then uh, interpret the coefficients and the statistical significance scores and we actually learn and we, and we say, okay, these turns out, some of these things aren't so important. Some of them are. And then we, we use that once we've done that, which does involve some human assessment of mm -hmm. what we would see, then we could build a model that could instantly generate other predictions without requiring more human mm -hmm. input. And that whole process is machine learning. Yeah. So it impacts us in, in many ways. Uh, think about one way we could imagine is going to, I'm still kind of amazed, you know, you, when I deposit a check on my phone or on an ATM, you know, how does it know it, it, it's doing optical character yes. recognition? How do they know the amount? I just wouldn't. <laughs> but, but that's a machine learning problem right. because sometimes sometimes sevens look like ones, right. sometimes eights look right. like threes. But a machine. But once you train an algorithm enough times to spot the differences, mm -hmm. you can actually get that automated result. Right. So speaking about data, because we're, we're, uh, of course, I think the input for machine learning is a lot of statistical data. And and then, of course, uh, the extension would be something like artificial intelligence that makes decisions based on whatever it has learned. But now uh, speaking about data, there's an ongoing global debate about data privacy. Europe has gone all the way with you know GDPR, while other countries are still figuring out the best way to balance data privacy with the need to also preemptively detect and act on threats to national security without turning the whole thing into a mass surveillance program, right? So there's also the worry that big companies will misuse user data. Where do you think the balance lies and how can we work towards a practical solution to this problem? So that is a tough question because as you said, there are, this is this question is being answered so differently in in different jurisdictions, and the internet itself is not is not something built around the idea of jurisdictions, mm -hmm. right? It's it's, it's a free, free and free open, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. They don't know borders. These packets, so so it's it's challenging, and there are a lot of questions about the implications that come from data collection done by corporations that are not restricted by the same legal sorts of things like like there's no bill of oh, yes. rights mm -hmm. in in the US. yeah there's a bill of rights that 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 gives citizens rights from from the government mm -hmm. but not from google yeah. or facebook yeah. <laughs> so so it's it's going to this question is 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 something that will just keep evolving throughout our um, our lifetimes but it's something that we should be aware of because it's it's very easy to say, well, I don't care because I have nothing to hide. People say that a lot. 
But that won't always work when you might end up in a situation where a company knows something about your your medical uh, past or, or about something in your maybe even in your just in your family's mm -hmm. medical past that you might not want to share. And, and that can be inadvertently spilled uh, and, and then you would care. And so it's it's something that we should be aware of. And there's always the companies that provide services are going to say, look, we bring all these wonderful services to people around the world and we do it in part or in large part because we're also using user data to, to monetize our service. So it's something just to, it's something that we shouldn't let this go and not care about. Uh, and it's something that it's, it's something that will that that we should monitor and and it's something we should be conscious of. But it's something, unfortunately, where where all the answers aren't anything we know right now because it's so complicated and multifaceted. Right. And and has the emergence of apps with end-to-end -end encryption like Signal or WhatsApp affected the ability to collect intelligence, especially in areas where uh, maybe good intelligence inputs are required uh, to make better decisions about security or has it just changed the way intelligence is collected i am more inclined to go with the second the, the second part of your question in, in terms of the alternatives of changing the way something is collected and i'll give an example and the example i'm going to talk about is something called tor hmm. tor for those who some of you might know tor if you don't that stands for the onion router t o r and that is something that you can download uh, as a separate browser or as an uh, extension in some browsers. And it will effectively scramble the origin point of, of an IP address mm -hmm. for any kind of web request. So, so it's, it's going to give someone anonymity mm -hmm. online. But to come back to the second part of what Ankush mentioned, the, the thing that, that happens, though, is so so you've solved one issue. If, if you're doing something, let's say I'm, I'm a criminal or I'm masterminding some uh, some terrorist network. Well, I, I've I've solved that problem of can I hide my IP address? But what happens sometimes is people use these forums to talk and they feel more free mm. and they feel more to communicate. And often the, the people like the FBI, they're aware of this. Yeah. <laughs> so they're actually <laughs> on that. Yeah. So they're using this as well. So the FBI, they've infiltrated some of these awful, truly yeah. awful stuff like, like child pornographers. They've used Tor, even though they couldn't do it technically, because they're there and they're mm. speaking with these people in these forums. The people once people talk enough, they 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 slip. They 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 let loose something like an address, a location, etc., and they have actually been able to uh, interdict some of these. And the same thing is true with with whether if we're talking terrorism or drug like huge drug networks, we come up the networks come up against the same problem. They still have to physically commit whatever thing they're trying to do. They can't commit the crime on Twitter. <laughs> and so, uh, so it, yeah. it's often other yeah. things that yeah. actually- So I think so, to, to, to catch yeah. a criminal, you need to think like a criminal. <laughs> yes, and even and criminals don't always get yeah. it right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everybody makes make mistakes. mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have a question uh, from Ashwin from uh, the Netherlands. So uh, he asks, uh, how do you see data-driven modeling uh, being regulated? Do you think it's going to form an integrated or required part of the design tool chain in the future? 
So the regulation is, it's tough to enforce regulation of data-driven modeling. And, and that's not to say it couldn't happen, uh, but, but it's, it's something that if, if a company is going to develop a proprietary model, it would be tough to imagine a scenario where the way they build that model could be challenged. Now, for certain types of regulated industries, that's not that's different. So if we're talking about things like medicine and uh, like pharmaceutical testing, that's going to, you know, there, there can be standards that have to be met and that, right. and that mm -hmm. information would have to be submitted. Um, but um, it's but it, but it's certainly a challenge and it and it, it can there can be problems when when it just goes unchallenged there can be biases in models right. so like if a model said yeah we're not going to send things to people in certain zip codes mm. that's something that could cause a lot of trouble because that could have a disproportionate impact on different types of people mm -hmm. yeah so over the past few decades especially after the IT boom in the 2000s uh, we saw a large chunk of skilled indians move to the us what we call is the brain drain, right? So at the same time, it presumably also took away jobs from Americans as well. So do you think there's a positive side to all of this? Definitely. So I think there there's a, a few positive sides to, to this. And I've actually gotten the chance to, to speak to the, the, the person, someone who put me in touch actually with the school. We, we chatted about this issue through through Zoom and he offered a perspective that as someone who he actually grew up in India and, and lives in the States now and is now a, a U.S. citizen and his you know family lives in, in the States. But it, what, one thing he mentioned was remittances. So when we look at it from the Indian perspective and, and not this certainly not just India, this would actually in be country, true for yeah. quite a few mm -hmm. other countries. Yes, yeah, that workers can uh, workers who, who come and, and stay in the States can send remittances back and those can actually have a big impact on on people's quality of life so so that's one thing to consider another is that with h1b visas the h1b program is is written in a way to say that these are going to be jobs that actually aren't these are positions that aren't taking something away from an american worker but it's a position that an american company can't fill domestically mm. and, and that's issue here because of the imbalance in terms of the need for certain technical right. skills and the preparation of the workforce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why you're going to continue to see H-1B program, yeah. the H-1B program <laughs> flourish. Yes. And you're going to see, we'll still keep seeing is uh, STEM PhDs are majority, the majority of STEM PhDs awarded in the States are going to people born outside, outside of, of the U.S. Mm -hmm. That's not going to change mm -hmm. anytime mm -hmm. soon. So where the, but there's a big benefit to the U.S. In, and we could see the famous examples, of course, uh, you know, look, we could look at IIT mm -hmm. and, and some of the biggest some of the biggest market cap companies in the mm -hmm. S&P. And we can see who's running them. And we can also see more. Uh, we can see the influence of, of things like Indian culture. And even in, if you look at even at in politics. Right. So, right. so who would think, uh, you know, in, what if our next presidential election is. <laughs> The, the daughter of a, of a Sikh immigrant against the daughter of a Tamil immigrant. I mean, it's, it's, it actually happened. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, the so vice president know. of the United States is uh, someone of Indian origin. So uh, that's very yes. Yeah. And the governor, I mean, I, I don't know if he's still governor, but the governor of Louisiana yeah, uh, yeah. was, uh, yeah, and also South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And then, and there's, you know, other prominent examples. So 
So we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it definitely influences, it, inf it has a lot of good influences on, on, on the US. Yes. So is there a possibility for a reverse brain drain to happen? Like can emerging economies like India create opportunities not only for investment, but for talent from developed countries like the United States to come and work here? I think yes. And I think it's it's a challenge because you have to overcome people's perceptions of what's the best place to work, what's the best environment to work right. in. But there's also, let's think about some advantages. So if you have, if you're a multinational company and you're, you're, you're set up and, and as quite a few are, you're set up in, in Bangalore, you, can you dang, can you offer something to workers from other countries to, to incentivize them to want to, mm -hmm. to come there? And there could be all kinds of ways companies could do that one of them is just think about the the purchasing power mm -hmm. of using you know if they're getting paid in, yeah. in their local currency mm -hmm. yeah and so that could be part of it and, and so i did see i felt like i saw more stories about this uh, why maybe 10 or 15 years ago i remember seeing a whole bunch of series of a, a series of articles in the new york times specifically about india attracting workers uh, from overseas and I, 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 maybe I just haven't picked up on that thread as much lately, but, but that's an example. And there could be many other such examples that, that emerge. I think, I think what's interesting is that uh, the, C, the CEOs of a lot of uh, companies based in America are Indians, while we have the CEOs of a lot of companies based in India being non-Indians. You know, we have a lot of uh, American people becoming CEOs of uh, companies here. Uh, that's a very interesting thing. And as you said, it's, it's important to incentivize uh, the reason for uh, coming and settling here. Now, uh, of course, uh, we're we're almost uh, out of time, but uh, let me just uh, try to cover a few more questions here. Now, uh, there's a student, uh, 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 Meghna, who asks, uh, it's quite impressive that you said that a student needs to uh, be satisfied only when they know something. And uh, she asks, will you visit India in the near future so that we students can interact with you directly and get motivated to be more quality conscious? Well, I would love to. I mean, I, I don't know when I would be able to. Of course, for the immediate, immediate future, I mean, yeah. travel is yeah. still such a, a difficult thing. Uh, but it, but it's something I know I would really love to do. And and I one thing I know I, I just haven't done is is international travel, uh, not not counting the military. I, I would love to just travel and see places. So that would be something I would certainly love to do. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, definitely, I mean, you would be most welcome to come to our campus and uh, talk to our students sometime because I think it's... Uh, uh, it, 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 we've had such a wonderful conversation and I think... Uh, having a face-to-face -face interaction with uh, students is actually very, very different from an online interaction like this because they get to ask questions and open up more uh, uh, better in a better way when they are right in front of you. Uh, now, there's one more question from uh, a viewer called Shubha. She asks, uh, what is the importance of discipline in a civilian's life? Because there's obviously discipline in the military, right? But what's the importance of discipline in a civilian's life? Well, so to answer that, I'm going to come back to something that Ankush said all the way at the very, very beginning of this chat. And what he said was that 
it's those. It, and I'll, I'm going to paraphrase what you said because I don't. <laughs> I'm not going to say the words. But it's it's the small things you do all the time. It's it's the discipline. It's the work ethic you put in every day that that you that builds you into who you are, and then greatness follows that. Mm-hmm. And and that's absolutely true uh, because you're nothing's going to happen by magic. And so the discipline is to say this. It's to say, if you want to conquer something and it seems it's going to seem really hard, suppose like, let's say we took machine learning, which which just the name of it is, is sort of daunting. But but even if we call it statistical learning, it's still extremely wide ranging. It requires statistics. It requires computer science and it requires domain knowledge all mixed together. So so what do you do? So you, the one thing you could do is you could look at that and say it's too hard. It's too tough. You throw your hands up and, and you just do nothing. Right. Uh, the alternative is you say, okay, this looks really hard, but what? here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend half an hour a day, just half an hour a day. And it's not like, it's like, think of it like vitamins. Like when you miss, if you miss a week, you're not going to take eight vitamins the next, next day. So, so if you miss some sessions, you just don't try to make up for it. But just if you spent half an hour a day and you said, I'm going to dedicate myself to understanding statistics and I'm going to really just know how a regression model is built and I'm going to really learn about uh, classification tree models, then that discipline would would you would would take hold. And what you'd notice, the, the, the progress, it wouldn't be exactly linear. What would actually happen is you'd have like periods of time that kind of went like mm-hmm. this and then you'd have these breakthrough moments. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Where, where you'd have these big uh, improvements. Just like learning a, a foreign language, which which I'm sure many of you speak different languages at home versus in school, and some of you know. I think you know speak Indonesian, few. right? <laughs> How did yes, that yes. happen? I'm sorry, the... I cut you in between, but <laughs> yeah. Well, so what I did, I I sort of said, you know, what would if I could just pick a language and I could go and read a newspaper article every day, and this is so that this is really me living up to what I just said because what I said was, look, I'm gonna. Um, I'm going to go on to a, a local website like Comp- like uh, Compass, which just is the, one of their newspapers or uh, one of their other main sites, or even just the BBC, which which has uh, stories in Indonesian. I'm going to read it. Now, you might say, well, that's crazy. You don't know it. How could you read it? Well, I can't. But I can look at it and I can start to say, OK, well, what's this word? What's that mm-hmm. word? And I will translate and, you know, in, mm-hmm. in dictionary. So I start to say, OK, I'm going to actually learn the vocabulary. And and so I just did that day after day after day. And and it's a habit I, I still keep up is reading something, just reading one newspaper article a day in Indonesian. And so it, it works because eventually <laughs> the vocabulary tends to, my vocabulary is more towards like government and economics. <laughs> I, you know, but even some day-to-day conversation I could do, right. I'm certainly not fluent. Right. But it's the same approach. That's wonderful. I think uh, as we come to the end of this uh, interview, I think uh, I must say that uh, discipline, consistency, hard work, determination, these are all uh, contributors to success in life. And and definitely uh, moving ahead, we need to be aware of where we stand and what we need to do to go ahead in life. Uh, with this, any parting thoughts uh, to the students, you know, students of the ages 16, 17, what do you think they should keep in mind going ahead? They, they would be entering college soon. 
and what is something that you would say to yourself at that age and what do you think students should know what i want to say so what what i want to say to all of you is that if you don't feel like you know what you want to do in 10 years or if if you, if you feel confused uh, that's good, right? Like that's the part of the path of being your age. And so so you don't want to be so confused that you're just spinning in a circle. You want to be at, at the day-to-day -day level, you want to be doing what you should be. You want to be focused on your the things around you. What are your academic commitments and requirements and then extracurricular as, as well. But but don't worry about not having your whole life plan figured out because you have a lot of time for that. And so, and you realize that as you get older. I mean, I turned 40 this year, so so I've you know start to realize, okay, now I'm not like young anymore. And and I can now say with, with that with that older wisdom, I guess, that that you you have time to figure those things out. So so let that run its course and and just know that a lot of times the, the path the path to success is not always a completely straight line. Right. So, of course, I, I said that would be a parting question, but uh, there is one viewer question that which we will take last. Uh, this is Santosh from Atlanta. He asks, uh, what, college, what should college graduates need to know while entering the job market post-coronavirus? Okay, so post-coronavirus, just know that so so the different environments the company culture of whatever job you're going into has been has been shifted it has you know you're gonna have to just figure out you're gonna figure out two things one is what's the what's the what is the culture of this company that i'm coming into and then secondly how much do i have to filter recent events to to understand mm -hmm. that and and so what i would say and this is something i would say covid or no covid uh, when you when you go in somewhere when you're starting off new I, i'm going to use a statistical term here i i want your null hypothesis <laughs> to be that whatever thing your company is doing is is it it makes sense now now hold on i'm not saying you just have to sit down shut up and go along because everything around you is right it's not always right when you see something that you think could be improved, changed, or something should be altered, you prove it, right. prove it. But but just like in statistics, you have to really, when you have an alternative hypothesis, you have to really go out of your way to demonstrate right. that. Um, but I would say otherwise, when you're starting off somewhere, focus more on absorbing what they do and, and not always assuming that that they're doing something dumb or wrong. Sometimes there's a reason. And so I think I've seen where I see the young people cross that line from confidence to arrogance is when when people don't do that and they just assume something's uh, something's wrong because they don't like it right away. And and I know I, I took a little bit of a detour from Santosh's question, but I just want to add that to anybody who's entering the workforce. Right. I, it was wonderful chatting with you today because uh, I think I did not really realize how much time had passed. It, we covered a lot of topics and thank you so much for uh, coming on to this program and uh, sharing your thoughts and motivating our viewers. So thank you so much. Ankush, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you, everybody who put questions in. And uh, it was great to chat with Dear you. Dear viewers, uh, with this, we come to the end of this season of Edupath. If you have missed any of our earlier episodes, you can watch them again on our YouTube channel. 
make sure you subscribe to the channel as well. And you can also listen to the episodes as a podcast on all your favorite platforms. Keep following us on Facebook and Instagram for updates. Uh, and we will come back with the season two soon. Until then, goodbye and thank you. Thank you.